Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today's episode, we're talking about anxiety, this time from the perspective of Dr. Ellen Vora, who's a psychiatrist who wrote the anatomy of anxiety, understanding and overcoming the body's fear response. And through her perspective, we're going to spend a lot of time on what she calls false anxiety. And that's the controllable anxiety, the stuff that we can actually do something about. So why not do something about it, both for ourselves and for our kids? Ellen Vora is a board certified psychiatrist. She's also an acupuncturist, a yoga teacher, and author. So she really takes a functional medicine approach to mental health. So yes, she has a degree from Yale and an MD from Columbia. And also it's a both and. It's not just the medical model. She also takes a holistic model. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and write a little review if you have a minute, which I know nobody does. And of course, you can subscribe to my free Substack newsletter, drlisapressman.substack.com. And I'm going to have a new season of Raising Good Humans podcast premium on Apple Podcasts. So many fun things. Of course, you can always DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcasts on my Instagram, send in some questions. I'll answer them on the newsletter, on the podcasts, and on social media. Let's just define anxiety and then maybe you could separate it into false anxiety and true anxiety. So I am now a little more than a year into a book tour where I've been asked to define anxiety so many times, and I have refused to develop a good talking point on that one. <laughs> and so I bristle at the question, partly because we've, we've all come of age with this genetic chemical imbalance understanding of mental health. We think of mental health from the neck up. We really regard the, the Bible of mental health, this Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the DSM, as you know, as if it's the a Bible, Bible. <laughs> and it, it's it has us thinking about anxiety as an entity and as a genetic chemical destiny and fixed trait. And I'm just here to say I think anxiety is a symptom, and it doesn't even tell us much of the underlying root cause. It's a symptom. It's one flavor of how a body and brain out of balance can manifest. And, and it just is a call to action to roll up our sleeves and do some investigative work to understand, is there some state of physical imbalance creating this state of anxiety? Is there some unmet need or psycho-spiritual imbalance 
creating this anxiety or some fun combination of the two. And we address it at that level and support someone. And then they don't need to be feeling anxious anymore with the exception of what we'll get into in a moment, which is true anxiety, which is not something to even, it's not an entity either. It's really just our inner compass. And we can experience that as a feeling of anxiety. So I think that I have a lousy answer to that question to start things off right. (laughs) No, I think that's a really good way of setting up how this is a different way of thinking. And I do want to point out that there is such thing as true anxiety only so that, because I I think people hear one part of this conversation and then they can use it against the other part of the conversation instead of both ends. And that is where taking things out of context and not having really rich discussions can not be of service to everyone. And the number of times even someone will say to me, like, I really liked when you said X, Y, or Z. And in my head, I'm thinking that was one half of a sentence. And without the other half, it's not necessarily even what I'm saying. So it's dangerous territory, but I feel like it's important to point out that we have this whole idea and construct around what this scary thing of anxiety is. and it does need to be turned not even upside down, just like re-understood. And maybe we have to let go of some of the ideas. And you, as you mentioned, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual is really like, I'm very excited for the rebirth of a new kind of Bible for this stuff, which will be so much different. And I think that's probably not that far away, maybe a decade, <laughs> which is too long for us to be able to take care of ourselves and our children, but exciting in that it's definitely like a new movement. So I don't think that was even a messy answer to the question. It's that it's not a clean answer. It's just not. And to your point, I mean, in many ways, I thought about entitling my book, The Both And Approach to Anxiety, because we need this nuanced both and conversation where we're in the gray area and in the messiness of what is happening here. But to start off with, anxiety is a symptom. And it can show up in so many different ways in all of us. And one person might have the occasional, you know, basically a euthymic or healthy baseline and occasionally punctuated by a panic attack out of the blue, whereas somebody else might exist with a chronic low-grade state of generalized anxiety, always worrying, always tense, difficulty falling asleep. Somebody else really might just have social anxiety or someone might have obsessive compulsive tendencies. And so it has a lot of different flavors, different ways that it shows up. And to me, we're taught to think that based on which of those constellations of symptoms, you, which boxes you check, that therefore that implies a cure. That's a carryover from when antibiotics were invented. That's the really the golden age of conventional medicine was we tested, we did a culture, we identified it's this bug, Therefore, you have this disease. Therefore, you take this antibiotic and you walk away cured. And I, as a physician, feel potent. And this was a happy dynamic and relationship. And we've been trying to reattain that formula in medicine in all of these conditions where it's inappropriate, with chronic conditions, with mental health, where there is no, you check these boxes. Therefore, it's this diagnosis. Therefore, it's this treatment. Therefore, we cured it. And we're trying to play by that paradigm inappropriately with mental health. If you're feeling anxious, it doesn't tell me the underlying root cause and it doesn't tell me the cure. And we're not going to solve things in that way with a neat bow. 
it tells me the symptom of how you manifest when something's out of balance. So let's roll up our sleeves and understand what is out of balance so that we can help you. Okay. So what are some of the things that get out of balance that we actually have control over? Because I think some of those false anxieties that you talk about are the most exciting because even though they're pervasive in our culture, they're, they're manageable. Like to me, that is like the greatest news. Yeah. I'll take one step back and define false anxiety and true anxiety and then go into the actionable. Here's how we fix our false anxiety. So this is the central thesis of my book is that we really have these two types of anxiety, false anxiety, which I realize now is an incredibly triggering term. (laughs) And it's not to invalidate the very real suffering of false anxiety. This is life altering suffering, but it is a speaks to the straightforward underlying path into that anxiety and out of. And so false anxiety is avoidable anxiety. It's based in the physical body. And it occurs when something has tipped the body into a stress response. And we subjectively experience that stress response as anxiety or even panic. And this can be something as seemingly innocuous as a blood sugar crash, a bad night of sleep, an extra cold brew coffee, a hangover. It generates a stress response. We feel anxious. Our mind, the consummate meaning maker that it is, is always all too happy to tell us a story to make sense of that anxious feeling. It says, oh, I'm anxious. Yeah, it's because this thing is going on at work and this interpersonal dynamic from the seventh grade still irks me. And our brain is attempting to make sense of what is first and foremost a physical sensation. And so with false anxiety, we would do well to identify the underlying root cause and then eliminate unnecessary suffering. True anxiety, on the other hand, is purposeful anxiety. It's not something to pathologize. It's not something we get to decaf coffee our way out of. Mm. It is our inner compass nudging us, asking us to slow down and pay attention to what's out of alignment. It can be in our personal lives, our community, the world at large. But there's some inconvenient truth that we secretly know that we haven't really fully faced. There's a call to action built in where we have to course correct and get something back into alignment. And true anxiety is really not what's wrong with us. It's in many ways what's right with us when we're able to viscerally connect to what's out of alignment in the world. And so true anxiety is not something to pathologize. It's something to honor and to heed. Around 75% of consumers greatly overestimate the cost of a life insurance policy, which then in turn can really turn you off to something that could be only $20 or $30 a month based on the coverage that you need, which would be wonderful to see because there's absolutely no price to make sure that our humans are taken care of emotionally, mentally, and of course, financially. Quility was co-founded by a working mom and partner, so they get it. Life is busy and raising good humans can be chaotic, but Quility makes it easy to apply from anywhere you have a Wi-Fi connection in the carpool pickup line, on your way to the office, or on your daily walk around the neighborhood. This takes all of the just totally overwhelming application processes for all of this kind of unpleasant stuff, and it makes it easy, and it makes it not scary, and it's designed direct to consumer. So if you need an agent available for personalized support and guidance, they have it, but you don't need it. Quility has created a special life insurance guide just for Raising Good Humans listeners. 
So visit Quility.com slash humans to learn more and match with your perfect policy. That's Q-U-I-L-I-T-Y dot com slash humans for more information. What are you waiting for? Don't wait. It's a good time to protect your humans. Support from today's episode comes in part from iHerb. iHerb offers the best curated selection of wellness products at the best possible value across a variety of categories, such as supplements, nutrition, and baby. And when it comes to you or your child's health, ingredients matter. iHerb cares about what's actually inside of every bottle that may make up your morning routine or your cool down routines for night. You can search by category, by brand, or by ailment. And you can further narrow your search by ratings, price, diet, like vegan or all natural. They've really thought of everything to make shopping for what can be overwhelming product choices into convenience and ease. My favorite. For a limited time, new customers will get 22% off their entire order with our exclusive offer. Go to iHerb.com and use the promo code HUMANS to get 22% off. I am very much into the new research on vitamin D and omegas and how important they are for our health and longevity. So that's what I ordered right away. And when you have those products, you want to make sure that they're made by companies that have vetted the ingredients. So it's time to get your health in check with iHerb. New customers get 22% off your first order when you use the code HUMANS at iHerb.com. That's 22% off your first order at iherb.com, promo code HUMANS. Choose iHerb because wellness matters. One of the things I noticed with young people is the conversation is like, well, I have anxiety. And it's a very comfortable diagnosis. And so many of the times, it might not be a pathology. It might be that this particular child is extra attuned with the world and with themselves. I do want to get into, not yet, but I do want to get into the beautiful superpowers of that kind of way of being, but just that there are different ways to take care of yourself when that's your way of being in the world. This is so astute. I'm also, I bristle a little bit at that. I have anxiety. It's my anxiety. We really, we, we sit squarely in that diagnosis and assume it's a fixed trait and a part of our identity. And I don't mean ever, ever to stigmatize mental health. That is never my goal or the spirit of how I'm approaching this. I just want to lift us out of what I consider to be our least hopeful narrative about mental health. When we focus on mental health as a genetic chemical imbalance, and we say that it's a fixed trait, it's a destiny, it's something inherent to you, then you're stuck and you're suffering. And if the one path up that mountain of healing that happens to be our default setting of treatment, which is therapy and medication. If that happens to work well for you, great, then we don't have a problem. But there are millions of people for whom it doesn't offer adequate relief from symptoms. And then they feel they can despair because they say, this is me. I have a genetic chemical imbalance. This is always how I will feel. And I tried the medication and it didn't work. So I'm stuck. And I never want anybody to despair. And I suggest that we shift our focus away from exclusively focusing on genes and instead looking at the long list of evidence-based determinants of our mental health that have to do with how we're sleeping, the degree of inflammation coursing through our bloodstream, 
how we're feeding ourselves, how we're moving our bodies, our hormones, all the way to do we have community? Are we being of service? Do we have connection to nature? Do we have play and pleasure and ritual in our lives? Do we have a sense of meaning and purpose? All of these are evidence-based determinants of our mental health. And when we focus on that, it's a message of empowerment and hope. And actually, I think going even further, particularly with younger people, but of course, there's no separating the the caregivers need the care and support in order to be available for the younger people to be supported. And so we have to take really seriously what we need. But I think that that's another issue, which is the judgment around all of it in both cases. Like if you've tried all of the traditional therapeutic approaches and they have not worked, or if they have worked, and you've also in concert tried things that really support your systems and you're thinking about, like you said, I mean, how much how much is solved by really managing sleep? Like so much mental health is solved by that. And it sounds too simple to be true and hard to commit to and sometimes ridiculous. And yet it's life altering. So sometimes I just feel like the conversation becomes like a statement of weakness. I actually heard someone say something really heartbreaking to me, which was they were actually doing everything under the sun to care for themselves and they were still suffering. And I don't want this conversation to go in this direction because it's not typically what this is about or what we hear. But in this case, they were doing everything to avoid therapy and medication because they were against it, because we have such a need to decide this one thing, like like the one path. So they were doing everything they could for supporting their bodies and their mental health and their setting up their environment beautifully and sleep and mindfulness and paying attention to their diet. And they still felt like they were suffering. So they went to medicine and then actually said to me, but I know that I, that's just because I'm weak. And I was like, oh my God, what has happened here? Like we've, we've gone so off the rails on either side of these polarizing ways of dealing because it's so gray and there's so much and we're each so individual. So the idea that one way is now showing a weakness when for some people, it may be true. They didn't try any of the things that would best support them and it wasn't the best path. So like, I just love being able to let go of all of the stigma around it because what you're saying is not against conversations about mental health. It's very much about just opening up the conversation so that we don't miss so much suffering and so that we can do the things that are doable. I liked when you said false anxiety is avoidable anxiety, but I just wanted to tell that story because it broke my heart. Like what kind of a, what have we done in society that any of these things are attributed to weakness of spirit or of self? It's, it's so illustrative of the ways that we get hyperpolarized about everything and think we are in one camp or the other. And we need to be dropping these labels and basically groping in the murky gray areas where it's, you find the combination that works for you. And I think that oftentimes I'll have patients who have only gone the conventional path and haven't done anything to address diet and lifestyle around their mental health. And that's where I think, let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. Yeah. And then I've had patients like this woman who's done everything 
and not felt better. And not only do I want to, I'm in the business of relieving human suffering. So we don't need to stay so stubbornly attached to doing things the natural or holistic way. Let's find the relief where we can get it. But I also think that we can become counter-therapeutic with the diet lifestyle interventions. The way we can be orthorexic about diet, we can be orthorexic about optimizing our health. And it, you can lose the plot and go past the point of where it's supportive and soft and gentle, and it can become such a white-knuckle, tight-gripped experience where you're then you're missing out on what actually makes life fulfilling. Mm. And so I think that and with medication, it's so difficult to communicate that I don't see a stigma with medication. I'm a psychiatrist. I prescribe medication. It's just not my first line. Because when I see someone who comes to me, they're depressed or they're anxious, I'm thinking, why? What's the root cause? Are they inflamed? Is this a gut dysbiosis? Is it a hormonal issue? Are they chronically sleep deprived? Is it a blood sugar management issue? And so on and so forth. Or do they not have community? Are they not setting boundaries in their life? So on and so forth. And to me, like I rarely think a depression is a Lexapro deficiency disorder. And so to slap that on and kind of mute the whole way that the body has of communicating imbalance, to me, it, it's not the elegant solution because I have a compulsive need to understand what is the true root cause? Can we address it at that level and obviate the need for medication? But if we can't, or if that work has become counter-therapeutic, it's really beautiful to have a bridge to pull somebody out of a very tough spot. And then we can regroup and reassess what's the imbalance, how can we support this person? But there's nothing inherently wrong with medication. The only other caveat I would add to that conversation is just we need informed consent about all the considerations with it. It's on the menu of options and it's not our best. It's not our worst option. It's, it's on the menu and it's sometimes very effective, sometimes not effective. We don't really have great ways of predicting for whom it's going to be effective. And I always want people to be aware of potential side effects and what it might be like when they decide to go off of it. And that withdrawal process, I think people deserve to know about upfront before they take the first pill. So I put patients on medication to great effect at times, but it don't, I don't always think it's the most elegant first line when you haven't already done the investigative work to understand what is the body communicating with these symptoms. So how can people do some investigative first work on themselves to sort of think about ways to suffer less. Yeah. So I always start with the false anxiety. It's the low hanging fruit. It's the quick wins. To me, once you address that, it clears the air and makes it easier to tune into the true anxiety. But with false anxiety, I'll work with a false anxiety inventory with my patients and we'll go through it and start to think about what resonates, what feels applicable, what feels accessible as a place to start. And one person might be like, yes, this does sound familiar. I get hangry and I get anxious when my blood sugar is crashing. And we start there. We take measures to support blood sugar stabilization. And for someone else, they might be aware that they are guzzling caffeine all day, every day. And you know, oh. we, we forget to question that that does generate a stress response in the body, which we can subjectively experience as anxiety. Caffeine is so normalized. It's cool. We flirt with our tattooed barista. It's like a positive part of our life. And we have positive associations with caffeine, not only because we're chronically exhausted because we're not sleeping because modern life compromises our circadian rhythm, but also we have positive associations with caffeine because it's a real drug. And I love it. It's we, my favorite drug. Well, we yeah. wake up in caffeine withdrawal. 
and nothing in the, it feels like our one true friend in the world and our salvation because nothing feels as good as scratching the itch of withdrawal with the withdrawn substance itself. So we give coffee a lot of credit for solving a problem it is originally responsible for. And I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with caffeine, but we all need to find the right balance for ourselves. If we're prone to anxiety, maybe we decrease the milligramage of caffeine. Maybe we splice in some decaf, push it to about 90 minutes after waking. Maybe it's one cup. And that could be the happy medium where we're not creating unnecessary suffering for ourselves. There's so much more to say, but I need to pause to talk about coffee because mm-hmm. personally, I'm going to take advantage of you as a resource. I love coffee when when I think about what makes me happy. <laughs> like, that is very high on my list. And I think about what you wrote and what you say and what the research is. And I I have not modified my behavior even slightly. And every time I have a cup, I giggle because I'm like, what in God's name is wrong with me <laughs> that I am unwilling? Like in my head, I'm like, well, the suffering I would have to endure from not having this deep joy of like a hot cup of coffee. It could be 95 degrees in the morning. Like I want my hot cup of coffee. I'm curious what's going on then in those moments when you just won't let go of it. Is that, I'm I'm sure you see that with so many other addictions, but like, because coffee feels so innocuous, relatively speaking, I just am like unwilling to move it. So a couple of things on this. One is that always start with like, is there a problem? You know, like if someone's coming to me and they're saying, I'm having panic attacks, I'm chronically feeling this gnawing sensation of dread and anxiety in my gut, then I'm saying, what can we do to alleviate that? But mm-hmm. if things are working, there's no problem. We don't need to change your lifestyle just for the sake of doing something according to what one wellness influencer says is right. So it's like all things, like if it's not, it may not be serving me, but it may not be harming me. Although, is it a problem if I can drink a cup of coffee at night and it doesn't impact my sleep? I'll just pass right out. It, it may not be harming you and it may be serving you. So coffee is complicated in that it's not an inherently bad substance. In many ways, it's an inherently good substance. It contains antioxidants. It contains magnesium. Tea has polyphenols. It's Coffee is associated with decreased rates of type 2 diabetes, Parkinson's disease, which I think when we fully adjudicate that evidence, it's it's a more interesting and complicated story as always. I'm sure. But I think that it's really just, are we trying to support symptoms? And if it's not causing a problem, we don't need to change anything. That's where we often get, we miss the plot in the wellness industry is we say there's this one size fits all mm. optimal way to be a virtuous, perfect human. And that's never, wellness itself is never the goal. It's you leading your version of a fulfilling life. And if this is working for you and creating fulfillment, then we don't have a problem. There's nothing to change. Oh my God, I love that answer, but I'm hearing something else now. It's just that that we do have resistance around changing anything addictive. Yeah. And so that's where it might be blocking your ability to clearly see that the sweet spot might be slightly shifted towards less milligrams of caffeine, who is to know, but it's just, I never want anybody to make sudden movements with caffeine changes. Like you don't go cold turkey. You want to gradually taper, gradually nudge it in different directions and see if you arrive at a balance that feels better overall. You know, it's also interesting because, and coffee, obviously, of the things, that one's very easy to taper off probably, but I notice also teenagers right now, it can't just be my observations. Like coffee's a big thing. Like I don't remember 
for example, Starbucks being the thing. And recently, like post-pandemic, I feel like it's become even more of a thing. And so that's where I wonder, okay, wait a second, because they need more sleep and they need, they haven't really figured out what's helping versus what's harming. So I wonder about how that does impact teenagers. And they're all anxious and they have and to they attend have such, right. with the fact that they have social media. So like, we don't need to add any more fuel to the fire. I, I think that, you know, I did not grow up with caffeine as part of my life and as a Neither. teenager. Yeah. I, I think that when you scan the landscape, you'll notice that the most successful companies are selling something that addicts the human brain whether it's nicotine or caffeine or alcohol or video games or pornography or social media or sugar or, or, or I think that that's where, to me, this is more of a rebellious act of reclaiming sovereignty and freedom. I, I like coffee. I actually am sensitive and don't do great with it, but I notice that I get so quickly addicted to it that I have done the work to get myself off of it partly because I just want freedom around all substances. I want to make choices very clear-eyed and not feel like it's my physiology driving me to choose something. And so that's that's just one consideration. And I think when you see a company like Starbucks say, okay, we, we used to sell you a cup of black coffee for 99 cents. Now we made it $4.95 and it's a frappuccino. And now we've added whipped cream and caramel drizzle. Right. We're basically communicating unconsciously that this is now a banana split. This is now appropriate for children. And children see that and they think, I want that. And Starbucks thinks, great, we just developed loyal customers starting a decade earlier than, than we previously did. Oof. And so, and I think there's something similar happening in a lot of different industries right now. And it's just disconcerting. Well, that's actually a great way to talk about it with adolescents because then they can look at it as an act of resistance to the way <laughs> the adults, capitalists are trying to draw them in. Yes. <laughs> Raising Good Humans is sponsored by BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash humans today to get 10% off your first month. This episode, we're talking about things that we can control so that we can prevent that manageable part of false anxiety, it's really easy to get caught up in everyone else's needs and never take a moment to think about what you need for yourself. What I love about even the time that I hope you're taking when you listen to Raising Good Humans podcast is that it's your time. It's your time to think about you, your child, your children, your family, your partner, your larger world, and how you want to use the science to make conscious decisions in your life. One way to do that is also through therapy. Therapy is obviously an important part of your mental health for many people. And finding a great therapist with the times that are convenient and flexible and suited to your schedule that can be really challenging. But it's even more important when you are taking care of yourself and other humans. So find out more about this balance with better health. Visit betterhelp.com slash humans today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash humans. You can just fill out a brief questionnaire, get matched with a licensed therapist. That's betterhelp.com slash humans and get started on a path to taking care of yourself. So you mentioned social media and I just, I mean, there's no way to 
have this conversation and avoid that. So maybe that's the next avoidable. I wonder what are the things that we can consider it's doing and what are the ways that we could maybe turn the volume of that power down? The facts are in and we know it's (laughs) right. I mean, it's, we'll put adults aside for a minute with young people. It, it appears to be detrimental to their mental health, impacting adolescent females the most of all. And that wasn't an easy journey to begin with. And so I think the way I frame it and make sense of this for myself is that we have to own, we are living in the attention economy. It is now our attention that is the commodity being competed for by very smart companies. They've done their homework. They know their neuroscience. They know their behavioral psychology. They know that if they prey on our fear response or instill uncertainty or doubt or controversy, that we will rubberneck and hand over an increasingly large share of our attention. They will get more clicks, more ad revenue. They're the big winners. But our mental health is the collateral damage. So the onus is on us as individuals to navigate this information landscape eyes wide open. And I think if if we're not being intentional about our relationship to the phone and social media, we are not being intentional about our mental health, period. I think these are both avoidable and also they are really challenging. So we do have to, you know, clear eyed go into this and I could see someone saying, okay, I'm going to go through the list of things in both in my diet and my way of walking through the world and whatever, and I'm going to free myself of a lot more suffering, but they take it to such an extreme, like you said, white knuckling it, that it's unsustainable. So what are some cues to helping yourself develop habits that are going to alleviate some of the suffering from going so far that it will be like a crash diet? We always need to strike a balance and we're all slightly different. I love Gretchen Rubin's types on this and to know yourself, to know, are you an upholder? Are you an obliger? Are you a rebel or a questioner? And it's helpful to know how you're going to react to instructions. (laughs) Oh, that's so true. Right. And I think that once you know yourself, I always, the imagery I want is a light grip where you're constantly checking in because you have to be saying like, to what end? How's that working out? Because wellness itself is not the goal. It's really just that our health needs to recede into the background and serve as a foundation for us to carry out our version of a fulfilling life. And for many of us, for many of us, we're really out of balance physically, mentally, and our physical and mental health is then getting in the way of our fulfilling lives. And for many people in my wellness industry, it's actually their wellness practices that have become the foreground and are now getting in the way of their fulfilling lives. So you just need to know where are you out of balance to come back to balance and in it, it, it just to know when the practices you're doing to get yourself healthy have become counter therapeutic. And what are some questions you can ask yourself? So I think that to me, it's always like what, what when I have a patient who is saying I'm really symptomatic, I'm, I'm basically saying it's worth the effort to do a lot upfront, to be on a therapeutic phase where we get you like back into balance. But then you're doing this manual transmission approach where you're really listening for like, when are the gears, I don't know, I drive an automatic car. So I don't know. When are the gears starting yeah. to like push back on you? When is there a resistance? And I think that as somebody becomes less symptomatic, the, the work and the practices need to be maintenance mode. And so if you know, if somebody is then saying, do I really need to still do all this? 
the question is, well, how are you feeling? How are mm. you doing? And then it's an ongoing dynamic process because sometimes the reason they're feeling good is all the wellness practices. <laughs> and so you can let them fall away and then it creeps back up. And six weeks later, they're like, why am I suddenly feeling all depressed and anxious again? And it's like, well, right. we let all that go to the side. And so you just keep trying to strike the right balance, but not where that is the foreground of your life, not where you're constantly reminding yourself that you're sick or that you're a patient, because that's a mindset that impacts our well-being as well. So just subtly in the background, you're checking in with yourself. And I think it's it's interesting how we're just not very embodied as a culture. We're emotion phobic. We're disconnected from our bodies. And so it's really hard for us to know how we're doing. We're in a revolution right now where everyone has wearables and we're, we're wearing the aura ring and we're wearing the whoop and the Apple watch. And there's something about that that I like because I can tell people until I'm blue in the face screens at night and alcohol at night is going to impact your sleep negatively. And people would be like, yeah, whatever, but probably not me. And then when they see that objectively in their own data, they're like, oh, it turns out, doctor, did you know that screens and alcohol are going to make my sleep worse? Because I saw it on my aura ring. And I was like, oh, amazing. That's so crazy. And so I think that there's something good about this, but it also concerns me because we are further externalizing I don't know how I feel. Let this device or this instrument or this objective measure tell me how I feel. And I think part of what we need to be strengthening is an internal, constant moment-to-moment, -moment, pleasant conversation with our bodies where it's, what's up, body? How are you doing? What's going on? And I, and I think we just need to be in a constant dialogue. And it doesn't have to be an overwhelming, weird process. It's just that we are tuning into this stack of meat that we wear in this physical human experience because it is it it serves us and it is required for us to go through this experience and in modern life it gets very out of balance it's interesting because with kids like with younger kids we're so aware that we need to you know if they have a lot of tummy aches we're aware that that's that might be telling us information but then as we get older we forget to tune into our bodies because we're just, I, I'm a very neck up person, no matter how much work I do to tune into my body and to, I meditate and I pay attention, but ultimately, like if I even take two minutes off of trying to make that effort, I'm back to being all up in my, you know, head to the point where even with my children, when they were little, I tried to change my language to stop talking so much about feelings and start talking about where and what is happening in our bodies because we're fine with how we can talk about feelings. Every family culture is different. Obviously in mine, that was not a challenge for other people. They very much need to learn the language of how to talk about feelings and they can let go of talking about the body. It so depends, but that was like really hard for me to grasp because I remember the first time somebody said, where do you feel that in your body? I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is exactly it. And I remember when my daughter was little, I had to put a note on the fridge that was basically, why is she fussy? Because I couldn't keep track of it in my mind. Did she need a burp? Was she hungry? Was she tired or overtired? Was she teething? Like, you know, she had a wet diaper. And it was just a couple too many to keep track of in any given sleep deprived moment. Yeah. And so I needed that list to cue me. 
And I think we adults, of course, just oversized toddlers in so many ways. And that's the false anxiety inventory. It's like, it's basically the equivalent of when do we need a burp and when do we have a wet diaper? When we're blood, when our blood sugar is crashing, when we're sleep deprived, when we're over caffeinated, when we're hungover, when we're about to get our period, when we're perimenopausal, when we haven't had good sex in a while, when, or a self-pleasure practice, when we don't have community in our lives, when we're spending too much time on screens, these are our wet diapers and our teething. And we just need to cue that both for the actionable takeaway, like, oh, you're hungry, have a snack. And also to take the charge out of the situation in that moment. Is it that I want to murder everybody in my family or is it that I'm getting my period tomorrow? (laughs) And it doesn't invalidate our stressors. They're real. Absolutely. But it can lend some perspective and make us certainly more resilient in the face of our very real stressors. And I love that you bring up talking about feelings versus the somatic view, because I think this is such a critical both and. And I'm aware of the fact that I'm out of balance toward false anxiety identification. And I could do well to rebalance towards feelings. And there is sometimes, sometimes it's really powerful to be like, okay, my daughter's melting down. And actually, I'm aware that her blood sugar is crashing. So it's like, okay, like we can support this. And sometimes that's a bit of a, of a gaslight and, a, and an invalidation of what she's upset about in that moment. Sometimes I really just need to sit on the feelings bench with her and let her feel not alone in that feeling. Even if in the background, I'm thinking like, let me just get some snacks and put them in front of her because it's always both. It's the same way that the luteal phase, those days before our period, has both qualities. We have an amplified response to everything that's hard. We feel more irritable, more sensitive, or a little bit more doom and gloom, more prone to crying and overwhelm. And it's truth serum. And what's coming up in that moment, it, there's always, it's almost like our bullshit tolerance goes away. And so it's in certain ways the truest we get in our cycle, but also an exaggerated response to it. And I think the follicular phase, let things can roll off, but we're almost too chill right, about like, things that are not okay. <laughs> the majority of parents that I'm talking to will say, talk about a behavior and they'll say, what's, what's wrong? What do you think that, why do you think that's happening? Or what do you think that's about? And you really do need to know like, which direction do you bend so that you can, like, if you know that your default is to say like, well, I, I was thinking about the wet diaper or whatever the equivalent is, depending on the age of the human, the wet diaper or the food or the sleep or whatever, then you almost want to promise yourself that you'll first lean into what might be going on in their emotional lives. And then if that's your default, where that is my original default, then the question is like, wait a second, am I turning something that could be about hunger and basic human needs into something that is not a story of emotions and some, somebody was horrible to them at, at school or, you know, like some story that I'm telling myself. So I think that when we can get to know ourselves, which you were pointing out, just like being able to ask ourselves those questions helps us support our own anxiety and feelings and our children's. It's just like, who am I? What's my style? And like, what is easy for me? It's the same thing I feel when there are some parents who've been so permissive, even though they don't want to be permissive parents, they really bend that way. So those 
parents typically are more sensitive and attuned to their children's feelings. So I'm like, you don't need to sit on the bench with those kids. You're sitting on that bench all the time. You need to like really get comfortable with boundaries and probably seeing your child feeling less comfortable. And there are some parents who have never sat on that bench. So they don't really need to worry about the boundaries. Like those boundaries are really happening. And I think it feels quite the same way when it comes to being attuned to what's happening with our emotions and our behaviors and like our physical life. The both and. And I think with kids, just to touch on that subject, and I'll I'll reiterate that I'm an adult psychiatrist, but I'm treating a lot of patients who have teenage children. And I think that young people right now are uniquely at an all-time high of false anxiety and true anxiety. And I think that with false anxiety, this modern world, it's not fair. Like that's why I think that what I'm interested in is eliminating unnecessary suffering because we are pinballing physiology in every different direction. We don't have a shot at saying, here's the emotional content of this, sit on the feelings bench with me, because we're all over the place physiologically. And I think it impacts younger developing brains and bodies even more in a more pronounced way. So the caffeine, the sleep deprivation and the screens and the blood sugar and the artificial coloring and preservatives and additives, which we know also can contribute to difficulty with attention and with behavioral issues and hyperactivity, their physiology is pinballed all over the place. And they didn't even start off gestating in a world that was realer. They've come into this world. It's already everything is that the corporations have figured it out. They know how to dysregulate a metabolism. They know how to addict a brain. And so we are consuming foods that are engineered to be hyperpalatable. And it's really tough out there to navigate this modern landscape and stay balanced. That said, I think young people also have a thinner veil and they're more viscerally attuned to what's not right in the world. And, and also I think just generationally, like I was born in 1980. So I, I was born into a world that from my privileged perspective seemed kind of okay. Like we had messaging around kidnapping or crime, but it sort of mm-hmm. felt like there was some optimism in the background. And that is not the world the younger generations have been born into. It's been one thing after another hitting them down. And they're born into a world that says things are really not okay. I sit here recording this today in New York City. The wildfires in Canada and the sky is apocalyptically orange and dark at 3 p.m. That has never happened in my, like, I don't remember that ever happening in New York. So if it has, it was, it had to have been when I was quite little. It didn't didn't happen. Yeah. So to hear all these things that our kids are finding out, like this never happens except it did. It's so unnerving. And we had a pandemic. I mean, we we don't need to go through the list of things, but but the number of times I've been asked to do like 10 things you can say to your kids to tell them about, and it's like fill in the blank and everything is one horror after another. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, every time I'm writing it, I'm like, how am I even like, how is this happening again? There's like another, this never happens, but it is. They have a whopping dose of true anxiety. They're fully aware of what's not right in the world. And I think our role in many ways to contain that is to validate, like, you're not wrong for being disconcerted by this. I remember when I was pregnant, there was this Kundalini practitioner who came up to me and she put her hand on my belly and she said, ah, like she made some blessing. And then she said, girl or boy? And I said, girl. 
And at the time, I carried a lot of self-loathing misogyny and resentment and frustration with the plight of going through this world as a woman. And I really felt like it's harder. I hadn't really made peace with that. And that changed in an instant when she said to me, ah, girl, it's a harder path, but it's a higher calling. And the reason I bring this up right now is that I think that the young people who are so attuned to everything that's wrong, it is a harder path, but a higher calling. And with purposeful anxiety, with true anxiety, it only feels like anxiety when you're immobile. And when you can let that anxiety fuel any form of purposeful action, any form of showing up, then you don't feel mired in anxiety anymore. You start to feel imbued with purpose. You, and it doesn't matter how large or small. It's just that it's a call to action. It's asking you to show up. And so I think that that's a pathway for these very viscerally, highly sensitive kids. We certainly don't want to invalidate the reality. Like they are tapped into a truth that we can't even see, but we want to help them find ways to fuel purposeful action with that anxiety. You know, it is so important to make sure that they and we understand that that true anxiety really comes from a deep attunement with themselves and others. And that that is something that they can, I, Dan Siegel said this to me, but he said he doesn't know who to attribute it to. So I don't know who said it. It's pretty simple, but when, you know, when you're feeling hopeless, get helpful, but there's something so true about offering, like in, if it's information about what matters to you and about who you are and who you want to be in the world. That inner compass is so, people spend their lifetime trying to find that. And then for people who have it, they're like, I, I'm pathologized, like there's something wrong with me. And so how wonderful to be able to raise kids in a world where if they are experiencing it, even if it comes alongside some suffering, we can set up the environment so that the suffering is minimized, but also not try to get rid of this incredible superpower by invalidating it or saying like they're supposed to not feel that way or whatever it is. Like there are very real reasons to attune to the experience of others and feel better. And if we just shift the way we name it, I think we could change the world. It's, it would be so, so nice. Exactly. And I feel like the steps are you clear the air because you do want to eliminate the unnecessary suffering of the false anxiety. Because if your physiology is being pinballed in every direction, everything feels like true anxiety. Right. When right. in fact, it's not all your mission. And so like you can be just doom scrolling on your phone at midnight and think like, I have to be the activist of every cause and everything is terrible. And it, it's you have to get the physiology in balance, and then realize what is your unique contribution to make, which doesn't have to be everyone's worldview. It's, it feels good to me to feel that we all bring our unique perspectives and our unique gifts, and we have a contribution to carry out. And I think to people with true anxiety, to empower them with the awareness that this anxiety is a superpower. It is an, a form of attunement or even like clairvoyance. It's a special sense that you have, and you can use it as a compass. And I think that that can really change the subjective experience of anxiety.
Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.